This is the second part of our series on HROs with David Van Stralen. In this episode, we're going to talk about how HROs value experience within the organization, templating success by instituting HRO methodology prior to the crisis, a quick overview of the five principles of HROs, and shifting the culture of your organization through HRO implementation. It reminds me when you're talking about that as far as the operators, we discussed a thing called educated operators a while ago, and you defined subtle as something that's hard to grasp, not obvious or easily understood, barely noticeable. It could be the weak signal that may only be noticed by someone that has experience, where nuance is a smaller, subtle distinction. Is there or is there not a difference in, in what I'm seeing here? And then the amount of subtle is gained in nuance from actual experience. So, you know, going into what you're just saying, as far as people that have the experience of being on the ground, doing these things, dictating what those procedures are, SOPs, TTPs, whatever for those people is, is pretty vitally important within that HRO is understanding what, what your job is, what your experience level is bringing into it and listening to those people. Well, that's important. That's important to the rookie. What's, what startled me when I went from ambulance work and fire service to healthcare was how they treat the student and the rookie. In the fire service, how the rookie left your fire station was a mark of how good you were as a fire house um, and the captain. On the ambulance work, if, if, when you came on the job as a rookie, um, how you went to your next guy you worked with was a mark of how good your, your first guy was. And, and, and you as a trainer, the quality of your student reflected upon you. So you answered all their questions. You encouraged questions. There's no stupid question, no stupid concern. You could ask uh, these guys about anything, and I was impressed how I'd had a couple of years of college as I was going in through this, that almost more so than my academic professors, except for the best ones, um, they were willing to take the time to answer any question. I went to medicine, and what one uh, surgeon told me, he, he said, that's leap learning. You should learn on your own, and I can, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you what's important later. The students were looked down upon. They were a problem to have. They were extra work. They weren't protected. It's, uh, it's that phrase, you know, there, there's no stupid question, but there's plenty of inquisitive idiots. <laughs> so there was always a way to, by facial expression or by countenance, by, by stance, to let you know that the question was stupid. Um, if they were busy they did, or they were slow, either way, if it was busy, they didn't want to ask questions because it was took up too much time. If it was slow, they didn't want you to ask questions because they wanted to get out quickly. So I was really impressed that the, the way they, the approach they had towards students, now they'll tell otherwise, but having been on both sides of it, um, I've been in a number of hospitals, a number of training institutions, and it's very rare to see that richness. I was at one medical center recently, and uh, I took an intern out uh, to examine a patient six months into his training program. He said that in those six months, he's never seen a physician, an attending physician, examine a patient, and, and, and he could model that. For six months, he was on his own being taught by maybe a third-year resident, but basically said, go in and examine the patient. I'll tell you what happened. So there's no modeling of it like there's in the fire service or ambulance. So there's a big difference in, in, in that approach for the student. And I think it shows down the line. But yeah, the student is, is, is gold, and, and you can influence them by modeling the behaviors, the attitudes you model, um, how you do the questions. But most important is you encourage questions. Um, also, the crying wolf. I never heard that from the fire or ambulance service. If you thought it was serious, that was considered serious. And if you put out an officer's help call and they show up and it's all contained, no one said you shouldn't have called. 
and yet you find that in medicine. Again, it becomes so normal that when I do see it and bring it up, they tell me it didn't exist, that didn't happen, or I misunderstood. But again, that's the normalization of deviance I see in healthcare. And I've also, I think you'll see it in some of the other industries. In a book called, uh, that you're familiar with, Preventing Chaos and Crisis, Patrick has a quote in there. It says, the ability to deal with a crisis situation is largely dependent on the structures that have been developed before chaos arrives. The event can, in some ways, be considered as an abrupt and brutal audit. At a moment's notice, everything that was left unprepared becomes a complex problem, and every weakness comes rushing to the forefront. So when we look at at a base level, potentially those those five principles that people always hear about, which is you know your preoccupation with failure, reluctance to simplify, sensitivity to operations, commitment to resilience, and deference to expertise. You hear those sort of thrown around a little bit with different different definitions. I know that we can look at that from a couple couple different points, but if there's a way that you could start going through those principles from, you know, we discussed, I think, from an ambiguous or an ambiguity standpoint, uh, but let's look at it from a vulnerability because I think most people that deal with whether we're police departments, EMS situations, fire departments, rescue task force, whatever that is, that main thing that most chiefs and administrators are most concerned with is probably a, a vulnerability stance. Yeah, I want to do vulnerability from three different levels, but let's talk about vulnerability because before I started working with HRO, that was my goal is where are we vulnerable? Because the vulnerability in the ICU was a patient dies. On transport, vulnerability is our team gets injured in an accident and the patient dies. And so what does it look like beforehand? How can we catch it earlier? And that was my push for the early Herald. It was also my push towards what I call the covert compensated state. In other words, uh, I point out a 10-year-old, can somebody's at cardiac arrest. It's overt and, and it's um, decompensated. So the overt decompensated state, we get taught that. The four levels of shock, respiratory failure. How useful is that to us, really? Let's go into that covert state. The early signs, someone's breathing fast. Is that shock? It can be high heart rate. That could be shock or it could be pain. And I have seen people, kids, who we couldn't wean off the ventilator because they had to, uh, their chest tubes were taped down on either side and they couldn't expand their chest. I've seen kids who were being treated for uh, shock and it turned out that they had uh, received morphine. You have morphine and the symptoms go away immediately. So that's the, the vulnerability out there is, is what you want to get it when it's ambiguous. And ambiguous means that it's got two meanings. Um, two ways to have gotten there, two ways it can direct, and two responses to your medication, your intervention. So vulnerability is, is really the key to this. Now, the way that Wyke and Sutcliffe described that is they said it's preoccupation with failure. Some people don't like the word preoccupation. Some don't like the word failure. To me, it's all about vulnerability. And, and yes, I am preoccupied with that. Not that that's all I ever think about, but I'm always on the eye of it. I'm always vigilant for an early herald. I'm always looking for that, that compensated, covert state. And that's your, your preoccupation with failure. Well, who's going to see it first? It's going to be the person on the line, local knowledge. Uh, and that's your deference expertise. And, and local knowledge is a good use for that. Because as a physician, I might know more about the disease but who knows more about that patient and their response to my therapy and how fast the, the trajectory changes? That's the bedside nurse, respiratory therapist, or the medic in the field. So wherever I go, there's somebody who's got local knowledge. I have to defer to that expertise. They know what's working. They know how fast it's changing. They have information that's a, a continuous spectrum, 
and I'm asking for discrete individual pieces of, of data, and, and it doesn't mix that well. The, um, as we move towards that, because we are getting in this early ambiguous state where it's hard to read, things are, are more complex. We want to simplify them. Now, there is a way to simplify that's wrong and a way to simplify that's good. The wrong way, and some people call it simple, complex, simple, the first way we simplify things and we teach is we come them down to their fundamental elements, three or four, because that's all our brain can work with. And, and I know that short-term memory has more than that, but I'm telling you that in an emergency, a short-term memory has one or two of those memories is tied up with safety, anticipating what's going to happen next, and, um, you know, am I doing the right thing? I got, I got some things going on in my head. So it gives me about three or four to work with on the patient. Now, if those are independent of each other, then that fundamental three or four elements, independent, don't interact, that's the bad part of, insert, of, of simple because life's not that way. Things interact all the time. The next one is complex, and, and that's where they, you refuse to simplify and, and refuse is an important aspect of this because you may have to simplify it to address it, but you try not to. You want to keep in mind that things are complex here. If I measure the same thing four different ways, does that mean it's more important? Um, I may not be able to measure something because it's too weak of a signal or there's background noise or it's an early herald and I need to respond to it, but I can't interpret it. And that leads us towards the second simple where three or four simple points interact in a nonlinear way, make hugely complex situations with novel products. What am I talking about? Very simple. Go out to a, a street corner in a busy city and watch the light turn green and have pedestrians crossing the street. They cross into each other. They do it differently each time. Novel properties come out. It's complex. It's not predictable. But there's two simple rules they follow. Don't get too close because you'll touch the person. Don't get too far away because I'll put you into traffic. But it's nonlinear. It's proportional. Somebody's uh, unattractive or looks threatening, I get farther away. If they're feeble, I get farther away. If they're a toddler, I do. If they want to be more attractive or more robust, I might get closer to them. And every person coming at me, I'm judging how close can I get to that person compared to the other one. Two simple rules, nonlinear interaction makes an incredibly complex group interaction. And so we do have to simplify it. We're reluctant to it. We have to simplify it down to what we can control. Now, you're coming into it from a medic. I'm coming to it as a physician. Someone's coming to it as a nurse. Someone's coming to it as a, as a cop. We might all come from a different aspect. We will gradually slow things down and gain control of the situation in some way. We'll have different outcomes, but that's okay. But at least we brought things under control. That's that refusal to simplify. Deference to expertise, refusal to simplify, and preoccupation with failure. Now, the fourth one, sensitivity to operations. And I and talked to Carl about that, and, and we, from the operator side, said, well, you got to pay attention. And Carl said, no, what it was about is he found organizations would have a plan. That's the anticipation came from. Organizations have a plan, you stick to the plan. And, and you'll see that. I've had physicians tell me that. When I first came to a medical center, uh, one of the surgeons gave me a very sick patient. I watched him overnight. And, and the next morning, the surgeon said, well, you didn't do my therapy. I said, well, yeah, it, it didn't work. He says, well... You didn't try it. He says, yeah, I did. So you should try it a second time. So I did try it a second time, about two, three hours later. It didn't work. Well, it would have worked the third time. I says, yeah, I was up from 11 to 7 in the morning. And I said, I did. I tried it three times. It didn't work. It did not work. He says, well, it would have if you tried it right. And so he had a plan. And what he did not do is what Carl, and even though he's a famous surgeon, 
what Carl said was you want to be sensitive to operations because your operations may change your plan. They may not go according to the plan. Now, in the French wildland firefighting, I did a study of them from HRO, and whereas in, in our area we have a planning section, they have an anticipation section. So the editors wanted to change it to planning section because that's how anticipation is translated in French to English. And I said, no, I talked to them specifically about that, and they know the word translates to planning. But they said, we don't do planning because you cannot plan a fire. All you can do is anticipate a fire. The anticipation section anticipates where the fire will go and what resources we need. And, and so that's where you're, you're going along with this sensitivity to operations is so critical. You have to change your plan based on what's happening, the difference expertise, the complexity, the refusing to simplify. Finally is the, resi- is the resilience. For those of us in public safety, resilience is kind of the norm. You work the problem. You can't leave. I noticed when I went from the field as a medic to the uh, hospital, I noticed the surgeons, and I talked to them about that, they were the closest to what it was like in the field for us as a medic. Because in the operating room, you can't leave. You can't say, well, let me take a break and think about this. Once you start a procedure, you have to complete it. You can't walk out. In the field, once we got on scene, we had to complete the call. We couldn't call someone else to take over. We couldn't take a break. We'd come back the next day. We couldn't watch to see how it would develop. And, and that's the resilience you develop as part of your norm, but it's not norm for other people. Uh, and so the resilience is, is and, I'm, and there's a part that I realized that was important in the early 90s when I was teaching this that I got away from and I want to go back to it. And that was the concept called self-efficacy. And self-efficacy, efficacy means was I effective? Did I get the results I wanted? And self-efficacy is, can I influence change? Can I influence the outcome? And so early on when I work with students, I I have them do something so they know that the outcome was their decision and their action. And and, and so self-efficacy is an important part of resilience. It's the ability to absorb energy, pain, failure, and continue working it. On the firehouse, I was told, you know, work the problem. Uh, And you approach it, I was told, I don't know what's happening, but I know what to do. I say those two things to civilians, and they get lost with me. Healthcare has a hard problem with those two concepts. But to me, that's a, a significant part of uh, tied in with self-efficacy of what makes us resilient to get through to the end of the problem to, to its completion. I think a lot of times we use in, you know, in training, whether we're doing high angle or austere medicine or something like that, a lot of times we'll add in something on that commitment to resiliency is kind of that primary alternate contingency emergency and be able to, during training before the event, work up and down that spectrum of you have all the assets and then things become more complex and, and you're missing this or you don't have that. We start kind of building that in to where we never become that deer sort of in the headlights. I mean, that's important that we use the word assets because I was working as I took over the EMS agency in Riverside County and we were talking about some of the use of medics and being occupied in the hospital to watch patients because the hospital doesn't have enough beds. And I pointed out, as I have working in different hospitals, you know, a nurse, a respiratory therapist, a student, a paramedic, an EMT, those are assets. And, and, and that's an important aspect. The military, of course, sees it that way, and they see their, their personnel as assets. But, but I don't know if we do such a good job of that in public safety or in healthcare. And, and when we look at the people around us as assets, whether their assets are above you in rank and hierarchy or their subordinates, they're all assets. And when you start looking at a nurse or paramedic or doctor as an asset, I think it changes the way you think about them 
and the way you engage them and the way you start looking upon them as a resource. I think we'll kind of write something below this as kind of a cheat sheet, if you will, for the principles that we just kind of talked about. But you mentioned in, in one of your articles, I think that's going to be, uh, I'm not sure if it's printed yet or it's going to be coming out that I have laying in front of me here on kind of HRO core values that yourself and, and Tom Mercer wrote as far as kind of dignity, honesty, humility, empathy, duty, leadership. How does how does that kind of interaction, how does that have to change? You know, one of the things that I would say is just as, a, as an example, when you look into the cultural change or the, the core value change is we need to, in these environments, a lot of times, let's, let's take the fire department, for instance, we're running a fire department that has ALS capabilities. And let's say one of those medics screws up on that call you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning. And this is a very competent medic with an with a impeccable background, very, very good ACLs instructor, you know, ITLs, PHDLs instructor, etc. And he happened to work overtime. So the guy's working you know, 48 hours straight, 3 o'clock in the morning. He ends up hitting a call and grabs, you know, let's say, you know, the Epi 1-1000 that happens to be packaged in the little vial that looks identical to morphine and pops that thing open, gives the wrong med. Uh, a lot of people in the cultures that are out there will immediately try and burn that dude down, looking at, hey, we've, we've got to potentially suspend him. We're doing an entire QA. We're doing this. We're doing that. And look at basically burning that guy down when in reality, instead of looking at it like, hey, man, that guy's really good. That potentially could happen to any of us with lack of sleep, running 48 hours, you know, not hitting the, you know, your head to the to pillow yet. He is exhausted, happened to grab the, the wrong vial that looks identical to the other vial. That's a problem that any of us could have had. Maybe we should look at the origin of that and see if we can't get one of those vials changed or we change the the way that we carry that or something like that instead of looking at that problem as if any that could happen to any of us they look at potentially burning somebody down instead well that, that came up from several different uh, approaches um, my experiences in healthcare some of them being is the way that some of the uh, attending physicians I worked with treated uh, subordinates was to be honest with you, if it had occurred in the firehouse, they would have been fired, relieved from duty. And I actually presented some scenarios to fire officers and asked if a fire captain had done this, what would you do? And they said, we'd remove him from duty, put him into an EAP program and find out why he couldn't handle stress. And these are all respected behaviors. Uh, so I had a problem with that. And it came across it when I was studying some work on values 20-some years ago. And these guys looked at values from across the con- uh, countries, actually. And they found there were some values that, that were uh, opposed to each other. For example, creativity is an opposite value of uh, conformity, and obedience is an opposite value of initiative, roughly. And it was odd to me because how do you do both? There's, there, there's kind of a paradox there that they're opposite. And then I realized that in, in high reliability and emergencies, you shift rapidly from obedience and conformity to creativity and, and initiative. In, in fact, you balance the two of them. Constrained improvisation is where you improvise, but you're constrained by conformity to what's safe. And so, the, again, the mark of the HRO is this ability to shift their values over. But talking to people in the field, uh, some of them didn't have a good handle on that. They didn't quite understand it. So, uh, But further, I was also reading about um, different areas, and one of them was dignity. And it hit me that in respect, we always talk about, well, I don't respect that person. And I can come up with a reason why not to respect anybody. And, and so you'll hear that, that you have to earn respect. But dignity is one of those things that you always have to give somebody. When uh, 
the U.S. Navy pulled up a Russian submarine, and they had the Russian sailors during the height of the Cold War. They gave him a formal Russian naval burial out of the dignity. You know, bin Laden was given a, a, a proper Muslim burial. In death, you, they retained their dignity. And talking to a, a fire chief once, he said, when you discipline somebody, never take away their dignity. And I realized that, that we need to look at that. And I hate the word need, but the, the values are the needs. The five principles of Wyke and Sutcliffe are necessary and sufficient, but they don't make it run smoothly. And that dignity is an important one. Honesty was another one because there was trust. And there's high trust and low trust systems. The high trust system is the one I told you about when I guy kid said he was going to shoot me. And so I, I called the dispatcher and he didn't question, like, does he have a gun? Where is he now? Can you hide somewhere in a box? Um, he just said, okay, fine, we'll get you help. And, and so I have a problem with high trust, low trust, because in working with this, there's plenty of people who tell me that the, the issue is that, that uh, the other person can't be trusted, but I, I am a trustworthy person. It's the other people. So the trust was never really good for me. And, and talking to Tom Mercer about honesty and fidelity to the situation and the work, Tom brought up, he says, honesty is that what you say represents what's happening. Honesty has nothing to do with lying. Because I found that over the years I can create a system where I can make people lie because they lie to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, if I hear lying, then that's a reflection on me as a leader to know that I've created a system where people are protecting themselves. So, but Tom's point was that honesty is, is that what you see, what you report, represents what's happening. Duty was an important one because in working in the fire department, you had a duty to the citizens. And, and I thought it was a joke at first as a rookie. Whenever you wanted to transfer or do something, you had to say how it would serve the citizens. Looking back on it, that it may have been a somewhat of a joke, but in reality it was a repetition of, Everything you do must be to serve the citizens. What is our duty? So I talked to public safety people. They duty is pretty much to their partner, to the people around them. As Tom Mercer said, duty is you don't want to let the other guy down. Well, the other guy could be someone you're working with on a scene in a, in a uh, firefight or in a wildland fire. But duty can also be your larger organization. It can do, be the uh, community. And working in a hospital or a nursing home area, the staff, when they work over in the ICU, they notice that duty to the medical staff is what do I do as a nurse, what do I do as a physician, what is my job description? And duty is if it's not in that job description, I don't do it. They have a hard time shifting. So duty is more than what your job description is. It's a larger, expansive view. Now, empathy came up because working with uh, the concept of sympathy is that that's not going to bother me. Uh, you know, I'll sympathize with you or not. And I started watching some very good nurses who were somewhat sympathetic at times, otherwise they weren't sympathetic. I didn't understand why. And pretty much they had this idea that if the person caused the problem, they were less likely to be sympathetic. And empathy is a different concept. Empathy is is that that could be me. That could happen to me. That could happen to anybody. And we have to realize that. And that's critical for learning in an HRO because I work with families where children die. And I notice that sometimes the families get very angry with me and irritated with the staff. I finally I'd ask them, do your friends tell you that you don't have good doctors or nurses? And they say, yeah, they do. I said, do your friends tell you that you should have gone to the doctor sooner? They said, yeah, they do. And I said, do your friends tell you all these things that you did wrong? Like um, you should have given some medicine first. You should have given uh, fluids, given something to drink, put them in the cold air, take them out of the cold air. And they say, yes, they do. And I said, because they have to find that you did something wrong. Because if you did something wrong, that means their child is safe and it's your fault. 
If they find out that you did nothing wrong and your patient and your child is dying, that means their child could die just as easily. And they cannot believe that. They don't want to believe that. You have to have done something wrong. And, and that's the empathy. Empathy is that we have to understand that, that it could be us. Because I can never learn from someone else's mistake unless I understand that it could be me. Now, humility was one that Tom Mercer uh, advocated for. And I was a little problem with that because whenever I bring up the word humility, everybody tells me that they're the most humble person around and that serving humanity makes them more humble. And it's a, a, a contest over who's going to be the most humble person because they're so valuable that they're humble. Okay, that's, I think that you just described me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I described a lot of people. Yeah, all right, all right. Uh, but uh, his time of humility is, is that, that there but for the grace of God go I. you got to understand that, that everybody's going to fail at some point. And that's the humility you'll see. And, and I've noticed that. When I work with people who've been in live or die situations, they have an error about them, a humility about it. Now, they've got to have processed it because some people be in a live or die situation and it hits their brain differently. They never process it and they've always got a chip on their shoulder and they're always attacking people. Um, when I was in med school, uh, a secretary walked up and asked me, have you ever had a near-death situation? I said, well, yeah, why? And she asked me about it and we talked and she was taking a class on near-death experiences. Now, this is not the kind where you go to the light. This is the kind where somebody nearly died and it changed their view of life. And there's some commonality between them. And, and apparently I'd had those traits. And I started paying attention. And people who have felt vulnerable, this is, again, the importance of vulnerability. Anybody who's felt vulnerable realizes the only response to vulnerability is through other people and early you know, vigilance to what can go wrong. And, and, and realizing that you could lose everything. And that changes your view of life and, and your abilities. So you don't have that cockiness, that arrogance, that uh, macho man stuff that I can take on the world. Um, you'll see that in movies. It's great for movies. It sells well. But the guys I work with who've been in live or die situations tend to be more humble. Uh, they have that humility, that, that vulnerability. They realize that we have to be in this together and that... They may have been gotten through their last experience, but they may not get through the next one. And that's the importance of humility. All right, that was the end of episode two. Episode three will be out relatively soon, where we're going to talk about the neuropsychology and how sympathetic nervous system activation or fight or flight is managed within the HRO, preparing for ambiguity and chaos when creating or evaluating your current SOPs or TTPs, and deductive versus inductive reasoning.